0: Hello, and welcome to Dope Conversations Podcast. I am your host, Bikita Pegram, and I am going to give you something to think about. Hello, how are y'all dope podcasters doing out there today? My name is Bikita, and I am happy to be here. Guess who I have with me today? I have James the Third. If you do not know him, after this, you will be so impressed. You'll look him up on YouTube and watch everything that he has. And that's exactly how I found him. Um, Mr. McGee is the CEO of the Impact Movement. And I went on YouTube and I was in search of the critical race theory and found some videos that he had produced and posted. Great conversations, great intellects coming together and sharing information about spirituality and social justice and what that looks like. And that's exactly what we're talking about today. We wanna talk about what it looks like as a Christian to be involved in a movement and talk about those things that we can do at the grassroots level as Christians to be involved in the social justice movement. Mr. McGee is, like I said, the CEO of the Impact Movement. The Impact Movement is a nonprofit ministry focused on reaching black students in the academy. So they work with students at the HBC level, HBCU level and primarily black institutions and primarily white institutions. So we're glad to have him here today. Thank you, Mr. McGee for coming on.
1: You are most welcome. I'm glad to be with you. Is is it warmer in Houston these days? You
0: know, we went from 12 degrees so now. Yesterday it was 70. I had a t-shirt on. <laughs> so it's very different. Um, some people like to call our weather a little bipolar. <laughs> so how are you?
1: Oh, it's beautiful. It's sunny. And when I finish with you, I'm going to go for a nice walk because you know today is the anniversary of Ahmad Arbery's death. And so I'm going to get my miles in in honor of him and reflect upon him as well as the 500,000 people that passed away from COVID. So and you know, I'm looking forward to it.
0: That is so great. I'm glad you mentioned that because I listened to your show yesterday that you did on YouTube and you mentioned about getting out and taking a walk for him. And I think that is exactly what I had planned after this. I'm going to go take a, a few steps for him and just meditate and try to think about what's going on in the world around us. So thank you for Absolutely. mentioning
1: that. Oh, you're most welcome.
0: So, as I said, you're on to help us as Christians figure out what we can do. Every person is not built to maybe be a Martin Luther King or a Malcolm X, but there's definitely ways that we can use our talents to be a part of the movement and advance our community. So biblically, what role did Christ play in social justice?
1: Well, you know, I, I think the way that I've grown in my faith is that I think Jesus tells us exactly who he is. He's one of those guys that when he says something, you don't have to guess what he's meaning, uh, even though we see a lot of conversations. So when he announces his ministry, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. And most of us in our earlier Christian upbringing think the whole idea of Jesus was to down the cross. forgive us of our sins so we go to heaven and Jesus was a revolutionary this dude was here to to replace institutions and to 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 be subversive in institutions and so my understanding right now is that the goal of Jesus when you look at Luke chapter 4 about this whole idea of sharing good news to poor people about releasing captives who are free people who are oppressed to give people who don't see the ability to see, that's a revolutionary, that's justice. He's correcting spaces of inequities for us. And it's not future, even though there's a lot of future to it, it's also present tense. And that's what I see about the role of Jesus in social justice.
0: That was so beautifully explained because you're right. We do often just say, okay, Jesus just died for our sins. And we don't think about all the things that he did to help those that were in captivity. That's right. Well, I, I love that response. How and why do you think there has been a change in the present-day relationship we see today with the church in the movement?
1: Uh, you mean with the movement or with me?
0: With the movement, as far as I can remember, hearing stories about churches holding secret meetings and. Things like that, galvanizing people to help in the movement. Why do you think we don't see so much of that galvanizing today?
1: You know, I, th- I think I think there's a couple of different factors that we need to look at. The first one is the infusion from theological streams that cause us to move away from practices and beliefs that have been germane to the Black community for many years.
0: Okay, one break thing that in the down. Black
1: so in the Black community, there's a couple of things that we do see. One, there's always been a commitment to a mystical, omnipotent God, no doubt about it. There's also been a commitment to prayer. But it's also been an idea that the Black church was a place of integration for every aspect of our lives. It wasn't just there to go hear a good sermon. It was there for civic uh, concerns. It was there for education. Sunday school was as much teaching us about reading the scriptures so we can see in the text versus than what we have today, where it's just helping you go over Bible stories. It was really infusing a reality of informing a group of people. It was mobilizing both economic and political power for us. I think we've lost that today. I think today's infusion of a variety of education has caused us to lose hope or, or see importance in that. And that bothers me. Like for instance, you'll see a lot of people who will go over, um, go over uh, uh, the, the idea of, uh, of, of from white evangelicals theology, they'll come in and they'll remove aspects of, of, of social concerns of injustice. I mean, in today's narrative, people in many ways see Dr. King as a political social figure. And I remember when James Orange, one of his lieutenants, who I trained with to understand non, nonviolence, he told me, he says, what people fail to realize is that Dr. King, first and foremost, was a preacher. He was committed to the scripture. He was committed to people in his parish. And when you would meet some of his former parishioners, you will see that this dude was an everyday dude that he really cared about people. And I think what we've lost in these past 30, 40 years, we've taken certain aspects that we've highlighted and we thought was valued like public speaking, but we, we miss some of the other aspects of being in proximity. So one of the other factors are that so many of our churches are no longer parish churches. A parish church means that the church and its parishioners Walk to church, they're in close proximity to it, and Mm. so now you know, especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, you had all these churches being erupted on highways on land that was not urban, so people were driving away, right? So, what you had now is that you got distance that the church is not proxy in proximity to everyday people. Two, you also see that the pastor and the leaders of the church are also distant from everyday people. You don't see these people. You have no idea of how they're living, how they're thinking, how whatever they say on a Sunday translates into the remainder of the week. That wasn't true for Dr. King. His last home, I've been to his last house, been inside it before his wife died. Mm -hmm. And it's over there near Morris Brown. And in that neighborhood, It was a a multi-class black
0: community. Yeah, It was accessible to us. We don't have that today. You know, what I'm hearing is one, the church proximity plays a role in it because it's not in the community. So it's not always serving the community around. So the community is not being served around it. And I'm hearing also the pastor is not in that community. So if the church is not relating to the community that is around, how can you really service it? Because there's a disconnect.
1: It is a disconnect. I mean, when when Dr. King came to Chicago, my hometown, he came uh, into one of the neighborhoods that was very, very depressed. But he lived in that apartment. And he was living by example that he had depressed housing, even though he was a middle-class man. And what people fail to realize he had lots of meetings with gang brothers, young black dudes off the streets who are part of gangs. And he was not intimidated to have these kind of conversations. I would dare say, that's what the young brothers today are looking for. Cause you know, we don't, most churches are filled with women mm-hmm. and there are not a lot of young brothers who attend church. And I would say it would be very important for these pastors to be accessible to some of these
0: brothers. I think it builds, um a rapport with your community because you can relate to their struggle. When you stay in a half a million dollar home and your congregation stays in $50,000 home, there's a disconnect because you don't understand really the problems. You may have lived there one time before, but I get what you're saying. I think the the invisibility of the church in the community is creating a disconnect. And I don't think it's on purpose. It's
1: just it is what it is. It is, and and to be truthful, see, I grew up in Chicago, but I grew up in an era where we would still have segregated housing. So in my neighborhood, you had two parent homes, single parent homes. You had working class people. You had a pharmacist. My my seventh grade teacher lived right across the street from me. Uh, my friend, one block north of me, his mom was my brother's fourth grade teacher. All that was accessible to us. My dad worked for Firestone but when desegregation of housing occurred that means now you got middle and upper middle class black people being separated from lower class black people whereas before we were segregated according to race not class yeah and so you had accessibility to adopt a variety of people my dad when he worked for Firestone there wasn't a brother in a three block radius from my home that was now 15 or 16 years old who did not start working at Firestone because my dad was in that neighborhood. Yeah, And one of my friends, a childhood friend, he still kept that job with Firestone even after going to college. So he's been working there for over 30 plus years because he got that job because my dad helped him to get that job. Now we're talking about uh, underclass communities where people have two or three generations removed from people who have access. And I think that's a big thing for us as a church that we need to consider.
0: Yeah. To and I think when you start talking about the big church on the highway, then the preacher or the pastor then is trying to decide which neighborhoods do I support? Yes. Because then now I'm at risk of losing congregation members because they're like, well, you supporting that neighborhood, but what about our neighborhood?
1: Exactly, exactly. And so, what we talk about churches, and I'm not mad at it, churches need money to function and churches need money to create change. But I also would like to think in the past, you know, Vernon Johns uh, was the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church before Dr. King got there. And they actually got rid of him and they wanted someone like Dr. King who was learned, it. he was getting his PhD, and he was not that much of an activist. Vernon Johns used to do a variety of things. After he would finish his sermons, he would pull up a head of greens and some fish and start selling it because he believed in entrepreneurship. And then this is a phrase, I won't use his language. He said, do you want to see perpetual motion? Tell a black man to park his Cadillac on land that he owns Mm -hmm. because he was really trying to move this. He also understood he had a PhD so he could teach Greek and Hebrew. And so when they got Dr. King, there was an idea that we wanted someone who would be a maintainer, uh, a guy who would not shovel or push us forward. And what happened? The Lord brought him to that place, stirred up Montgomery, and then he got appointed because he was the newest dude on the block, the youngest one and the less intimidated one. And so that's why they picked him. And I think that's what we need now. We need the church, again, to be a place of stimulation. Uh, And and think about if they own masses of land, what about starting urban farms to begin to feed people and then teach people how to eat? Because sometimes, most of the time, I've been in a lot of communities because when I first started doing campus ministry, I would bring college students to live in low to moderate income neighborhoods. And people didn't know how to shop or cook healthy foods. Yeah. And 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 so what would be wrong for us to not only have an urban garden, but then teach people how to cook the food that they they pull out of the ground and and cook healthy foods for them to live? I think that would be profound.
0: Right. I think going back to something you said earlier, churches were integrated in our lives in a lot of ways. But yes. I I wonder if that has stopped because now you have other resources to help. So now the church has pulled back from those areas because you have a, a red cross. So maybe they don't need to help you with so many resources. The Benevolence Fund is not as needed because you have so many other outside sources. So maybe the church now is taking a moment to really just focus on salvation. Well, I, I would say that's
1: true. You do have service organizations around, but the, the most important thing that the church does have is people that you can touch and feel. And, and I can tell you right now, I, I remember talking to one of my friends as a principal here, and uh, he would talk about that there are churches around one of the schools that he was the principal of, and the, the members would never volunteer. And then he told me about one man who volunteered over 400 hours in his school. The, the guy didn't have any children at school. And he was one of his most valuable assets for that school. And so you, you think about this, these kids, if they come from single parent homes, or they don't have the opportunity to be mentored by a younger dude, what would that do to cause them to pivot and change their lives? Now, another guy that uh, in Chattanooga, he's in campus ministry, just like I am. And what he's done, where the school he's a part of is near two of the lowest performing middle schools in the state of Tennessee. So he gets his students to go over there and mentor. He's got two schools. And the principal gives him carte blanche to do anything he wants with those kids. And so, of course, what he's there is tutoring, mentoring, talking about behavior to give them, to have other options versus being violent. And But what he does, though, he makes sure that the students that go with him, their grades are straight at the university. Because if they're on probation, he's no use, they're no use to him. And he's been doing this now. And it's called the, what is he called it? The urban initiative. And at one point people wanted him to multiply this quickly and say, can you get to 10, 20 schools? But he understood that he wanted depth and not breadth. He right. wanted to go deep into those schools. And so now he's been doing this four or five years. And so students have two things coming out of his ministry. And it's just like impact in this way. The two things they have one they have an understanding of what it means to be a college student and a commitment to the community around them because they've been practicing and involved with this as students. So that means once they graduate, they can take that with them when they go to their next city. They can have that type of sensitivity because the problem is you can't introduce social justice at later, later stages of a person's Christian life. You need to introduce it from the very beginning. Right. From the very beginning, you need to model out how people are concerned right. uh, about other people. That's what Jesus did. Yeah, when he had these people gathered around, him, remember the five thousand people. Mm-hmm. He said it's late, and I think these people are hungry. And he says, "So what you think yeah. we should do, man? We ain't got no food around here. We it's it's almost dusk. Send them back home." He says, "No, I don't want you to do that." Right. And then one guy said, well, you know, we got this little dude over here. He got two fish and five loaves of bread. He said, have him come forward. And he prayed over it. Because Jesus was, as much as he was feeding the people, he was teaching his apostles to care
0: about people. And that's what I
1: love about Jesus. He never asked us to do anything that he's never
0: modeled. And that is social justice. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I think people only see one version of social justice, and that is... Us marching, and that is it. But there are so many different layers to social justicing. and that's what I want people to understand. Your talents can be used on any layer of that, and don't just think there's one way, one method. And thank you for saying that. Thank you for pointing that out.
1: Well, you know, I want to continue to say I think you're spot on. One another way that I think people need to be concerned about about social justice is this. Black people in the United States own less homes right now than we did in 1968. Mm. And so part of it is it's not just redlining, it's not it's not getting good mortgages from banks or, or or credit unions. So we need people who understand finance to get us back at homes. We don't have, I mean, if if people could only know that they could buy a house and pay less in a mortgage than they do in their rent, and know that that is. Wealth that they can pass on to their children that's that would be valuable for us as a community
0: and that could be somebody's social justice vehicle
1: <laughs> exactly right there. <laughs> you do that right there. That's just one thing. The other okay. thing you could do when, I, like I said, I'm from Chicago and my wife, who's not from Chicago says she would never marry a dude from Chicago. I took <laughs> her back in the neighborhood and she notices one thing. And tell me this ain't true in many of our communities around the country. She'll say. Chicken shack, chicken shack, chicken shack, liquor store, dialysis center, mm-hmm. chicken sack, chicken sack, chicken sack.
0: You forgot one thing. What's that? A barbershop.
1: Oh, yeah, you're right. It's <laughs> a barbershop. No, and a hairdresser. Yes. Both of them up there to get your nails done. Yes. But all that's in our community. Right. That's where our business is. So there's, there's creative ways that we can think that it's not killing us. Right. I mean, they just came out because of the pandemic that said the life expectancy has dropped significantly over the last years. And you know who was hurt the most? We were. Right. Our life expectancy dropped four years, where Latinos, I think, dropped two, and white people one. We can't afford to do that.
0: Right. Yeah, we got we to gotta get in there and help each other. And I think exactly. when we break down what social justice looks like, I really do think we'll get more people involved because they'll figure out ways that they can get involved. Exactly. And so that's what this podcast is all about. And that's why I brought you on. So now I wanna know, what are some of the things that the impact movement is doing to get involved in social justice movement? Because you may encourage somebody just by what you're doing. Well, what we wanna do is
1: holistic. So what we, we tell our students to do is to first be concerned about the community that they're part of, first our chapter, and then the community in the school, around the school, what's happening in the school area. And then the third thing, what is what is the status or the state of the community around the university? Because we feel like these are accessible rings that they can go to, you don't necessarily need a car. And so we want them to pay attention to their surroundings. So uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, a few years ago, when it seems like every few years we go through this, but in like 2016, we were going through a series of black people being killed in the public square. Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, just black people being killed and killed. And it was during the time that Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee and he was actually playing football at those points. And so one of our university uh, chapters at one of the universities, they wrote me an email and said, Mr. McGee, uh, we've been really thinking about this and we're concerned about this too. And it's, it's, it's bothering us. So we want to know, do we have your permission to go take a knee at the next college football game? I said, okay, well, you know, for me, I'm saying, like, oh, yeah, green light, but I called my attorney to make sure I wasn't getting them in trouble. Right. And I said, can they do it? she said, oh, yeah, they can do it. Let me tell you what happened. The next time they had a home game for the football team, the chapter at that point was only about 11 or 13 students. They took a knee at that game, and you know what happened? They got into the school newspaper and said a bunch of Black students took a knee during the national uh, um, allegiance uh, uh, to the flag or, or the national pledge, and and they were alarmed by it, and they called them by the impact move. So two things happened. One, we had a partnership with another white organization, and those white students were upset at the Black students for taking a knee. And they say, oh no, we're taking it for justice. We're taking a need saying that this Pledge of Allegiance is not working for us. Right? This Star Spangled Banner is not a song that we're singing that's given us freedom. The second thing happened, that chapter, there's now over a hundred people involved in that chapter. I knew it. You know why? Because black students saw, oh wow, y'all not just concerned about me getting to heaven, you are concerned about heaven being on this earth. Right. And, and so what we've told our students Is this some people think being a christian is to escape hell after you die but there's a hell for many black folks while we live in and so what we want to do is say that jesus is concerned about both hells right one that you're living in now and the one to protect you from going to one later on And and so we address the one now
0: and that's what the black church has to look at while they're worried about losing certain members and certain members of their church they don't realize how many members they would gain if exactly. they realized what you just said. You're not only concerned about my salvation, but you're concerned about my body while I'm here on earth. Exactly. That is it.
1: That, see, and that's profoundly the truth right now. I think the other thing what we do, so we're involved in a lot of things. When when Houston, when y'all had that hurricane, uh, was it three years ago? Mm-hmm. Three, but, um, hurricane years ago? Harvey? Yeah, Hurricane Har- Impact showed up. And we had a basketball player from another city who happens to play for y'all now. He he paid for us and we showed up in places where people didn't have water and people didn't have access in trucks. So we we tell our students that it's not lip service, that we want to be embodied and present in these right. issues. And, and that's people navigated
0: to you because of that.
1: Exactly.
0: And, and that's we continue I- to do that. And that's what I I really want Black preachers to understand. You don't have to lose members. And if you do lose members because you're showing concern, because trying to help people be looked at as human, you needed to lose them anyway. And you were going to lose them for whatever reason anyway. Exactly. But, But just think how many souls could be saved if they knew you not only cared about what happened to me after I died, but you care about me now.
1: See, I, I really think that's that's really the story that we're
0: talking about.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the story that I grieve about when you hear uh, just stories of, of how people are treated now. Right. There's uh, this is one thing which I think is a social justice issue. So uh, I'm late. I read a lot, as you can see over by me. That's not a fake thing. But one, one of the people that I didn't read enough of while she was alive was Toni Morrison. And I recently saw her documentary, and she's explaining to somebody how she was having a discussion with one of her girlfriends about God, and her girlfriend said she didn't believe in God anymore. And Toni Morrison said, well, I do, and I want to engage her. And so she said, well, why don't you believe in God? She said, because I've been praying for God for many years, and he's never, ever answered my prayers. So Morrison asked her, he said, what have you been praying for? I've been praying for blue eyes. And Morrison says that that kind of racism is about as bad or worse than dogs and shootings because it's destroying the soul of a person. And so this, and what she said was this girl was very, very, very dark and very, very, very beautiful. And she said, but she couldn't see it. The only way she could even think she was beautiful As if she had one trait of some Eurocentric characteristic. To me, that's social justice. Because as you can see, for so many people in our community, it's a deep, deep desire to look at ourselves and not see value. to not see that we were created in God's image. To me, that's social justice. The idea that we can begin to see people that they are added value by their existence. And that's the true story as you, as you talk to little brown and black kids around the country.
0: That's true. That, that self-love, that you can't get that if you don't see it. When you look at the magazines and you look at TV, little black, brown and dark-skinned girls aren't showed that they're beautiful. So it that's takes right. another brown or dark-skinned woman to show, right. hey, you are beautiful. My skin is just as beautiful. And that is social justice.
1: That is social justice. That's very much social justice. And I, I think those are the things that I would say it's much more, it's, is, it, is it standing up against uh, with Black Lives Matter, against violence on the street? The answer is yes. Is it advocating for the self-esteem of young black children? The answer is yes.
0: yes.
1: Is it advocating for fair housing in my community? The answer is yes.
0: Yes, because you have but, to make the person be viewed as a person by everybody. Yeah. So when the dark skinned woman is viewed by like a person, not less than because her skin is darker, all those things fall in line.
1: That's right. That's right. And I, I think that's I mean that that's what you know, that's some of the things that we're overcoming because some of the the, the injustices, and, and I don't want to say this, I know this in the podcast, but some of the injustices we perpetuate on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and we're gonna to have to advocate for ourselves. You know, I was talking yeah. to someone the other day about every slave revolt within our community when we were enslaved was betrayed by somebody in our community.
0: Ooh, yes.
1: It wasn't outside sources, it was
0: us. No. Even most recently with, when you watched the movie about Fran Hampton, they used that brother mentally, because he was feared he feared going to jail. So they were able to use him against yeah. the Black Panther movie. And then when I found out he stayed with the movement even after Fred Hampton had died, I was like, well, why you stay if it was just a job? Because that's what he, he kept saying. It was just a job. It was job. just
1: it was for the money. And see, and they picked that dude off the street mm-hmm. when he was 17. And what people fail to realize, Fred Hampton was killed when he was 21. And so Van Jones said this one statement in the documentary 13 that I still agree with. He said, man, they killed all of our leaders. And that's what they did. They killed all of our leaders. And so part of it is that you think about Fred Hampton, he was 21. And what's that, 1971? He was born in 1950. That dude would still be right in the thick of things right now if he was with us, mentoring the next generation.
0: Yeah, because I was born in 73. You see what I'm saying? He would still and, be here. And we maybe. would need him. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're so absolutely right. So what I want to do at this moment, this is what we call on the block. And on the block is where we try to make changes on our block. We okay. try to start within the home and work with our neighbors. What are two or three things that you think Christians can do at the grassroots level to get involved in social justice?
1: Well, one of the things I would say at the grassroots level is what my wife and I did when we, when our kids were in school, like my youngest now is 19, he'll be 20. And when, uh, for our kids, for most of the time, we would take, we would carpool with single parent families. Kids who didn't have a way to school to be on time, we would go around and adopt them. And one of the last guys I did, I remember so often was a guy named Ota. And uh, in, in fact, Ota has a little sister Uh, and so I would take Ota with me with my second son Noah to high school and then Asher would go with the younger sister to to, to the other school and I can still remember Ota his mom was mad at him because he wanted to get his ears pierced and just frustrated I said listen if getting his ear pierced is the worst thing you got to do with this dude I promise you let's work with that. Right. And and I said, I'll take him. And so I took him over to get both his ears pierced, sat there with him and moved on to this process. And when it was time to take him, I would take him out to have Thai dinner. I wanted to know, the people to know that I wasn't just concerned about my kid at that school. I was concerned about all the kids. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think that's where we need to go. There's an there's a old South African proverb that says any child is my child. And that's what I felt about at the schools that my kids attended, that not only did I want my son to succeed, I wanted all of the people in their classes to make it too. And so I remember on one occasion, I was at uh, Noah's high school and a couple of students came up and they grabbed onto me and they said, who is he? Is he a teacher? No, he ain't no teacher. Well, who is he? He's just a concerned parent.
0: Right. Just imagine, and I know that may have taken time away from what you were trying to do, but that effort that you did, imagine the amount of change you made in that community. And I would rather give that type of effort than having to march because my child died.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I wanted those kids to know we loved them. And we did, I was the first PTO president at NOAA school, and we did a lot. I would bring people in there called the scholarship academy to help parents realize that they can start applying for scholarships in ninth grade for their kids before they go to college. Uh, I brought in an attorney to teach them to train their kids how to behave with the police if they were pulled over, or if the police came to them. Right. And then there was a, partic- a particular book written for the state of Georgia so that they could become aware of the laws there. I mean, cause I didn't wanna see any of those kids harmed. Yeah. And, and I can still remember, I think it was Noah's sophomore, junior year, a freshman got in trouble for something at home and she committed suicide. I took off work and I want to be there to pray and to be present with kids, with my son and the teachers, wow. because that's hard.
0: It is it's hard.
1: And that's the stuff that I think that's easy to do right there. Yeah. That's some of the things I would say do. That is,
0: I just want to say thank you for coming. This has been the most amazing 30 minutes. You are actually my second guest. We had a youth uh, teenager on last week that was really good. So if you have a chance, check him out. He, he aspires to be just like you. He's um, a young Christian trying to find his way. He said he wants to do more and he's doing great. And I think you are a great example to young men and young women just like him. So I thank you for all that you are doing and, and you will do. Um, anything that you wanna promote or say before we close out?
1: Well, no, I, I if people wanna see us, we're gonna be dealing, we do real talk, uh, Facebook and YouTube live conversations every other Monday. We did one last night, like you said. And the next one we're gonna deal with is anti-Asian, anti-Black racism. So we'll have Black and Asian people to talk about the dilemmas of what it feels like to live in this white supremacist society and how we survive, and just talk about how we can build partnership across lines as well.
0: That's good. That's real good. So thank you so much. I appreciate Um, you. Audience, I just want you to take a moment, and if you can follow him to YouTube or Facebook so you can hear those conversations, it's inspiring and it does give you something to think about. Um, I also want to take a moment to ask you to go ahead and follow and subscribe and leave a review. If you have uh, Anchor, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of those other major podcast platforms, you'll be able to find us there. At the grassroots level, if you want to get involved, these are the things that we talked about today. Um, Dr. I am um, I'm keep, I'm keep telling you, you got to go get your PhD. I keep calling you doctor. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Mr. McGee has talked about carpooling with single parents. I think that's a great way. Another thing that I thought about was to change the view of beauty on social media. Hmm. Post as many dark women, dark men. Exactly. Make it flood your timeline with different versions of beauty. It's not one standard of beauty in America. Well, there is one standard, but we have the power to change that. And you have the power to change that and that is social justice. So again, check us out on Instagram and you can find me on Instagram at Piquita Pegram and Twitter at Piquita Pegram. If you take a screenshot, of the subscription that you did on the podcast show i will send you out a free educator shirt all my teachers you can get a free dope educators t-shirt if you send us a screenshot of your subscription other than that it has been fun go forth and be great Akita out